Welcome to the latest edition of The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freyhill's podcast series on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, Corporate Partner and ESG Lead for Australia, specialising in governance, market disclosure, risk management and shareholder engagement. This episode, I have a special guest co-host, Carolyn Pugsley, Managing Partner for our corporate practice. So my boss, my team member and a fellow governance co-conspirator. Welcome to your third wheel debut, Carolyn. Thank you very much. It's taken me a while to get a get a gig, but I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Today's edition is being recorded on the doorstep of COP28, about to be held in Dubai. And who better to join us than Lewis McDonald, global co-head of our energy practice. Lewis, I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, take it away. Thanks, Tim. It's um, great to be back on your podcast. I think it's a couple of years since I've made an appearance, probably after uh, COP26, I believe. Um, so yeah, I'm the, um, I lead the energy team over here and um, based in London. Um, yeah, looking forward to having a good discussion with you guys about uh, COP28 and what we're going to expect there. On, on that topic, exactly. Um, COP28, or it's as it's more formally known, the 28th meeting of the Conference of the Parties, the UN's annual climate change conference, uh, is about to be held in roughly two days, although by the time we work through uh, formatting for the podcast, maybe it'll be a little tighter than that. It will kick off on the 30th of November and be held in Dubai. But before we get into COP28 and what to expect from the Conference of the Parties, this year, we thought we might just have a, a bit of a retrospective over the last couple of conferences. The conference has served as a forum to negotiate, amongst other activities, the Kyoto Protocol, establish legal binding obligations and, and ongoing discussions between countries around how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. More recently, the meetings has, have also been used to negotiate the Paris Agreement, which created a general path towards climate action. Then there was also COP26 back in Glasgow, which resulted in some notable sovereign and non-sovereign commitments, including the Glasgow Financial Alliance to net zero. I feel like not all COPs are created equal, I have to say, Tim. Some certainly seem to uh, attract more publicity than others. And uh, certainly, I should say, I, I am feeling a little bit intimidated on this panel because I'm the only speaker on the podcast that didn't get a, a, a position uh, is speaking at COP26. Uh, so I note that, Tim, you were on a panel discussion in the wee hours from Australia um, about rethinking corporate purpose. Uh, any any takeaways that you still kind of have with you from that kind of particular session at COP26? I, I do have to be honest. Uh, having having been a virtual panellist dialing in, in the wee hours, my... my defining recollection is the 2am wake up time for the 3.30am speaking gig. But more broadly, I think that the big takeaway from COP26 was around the momentum and the media coverage. It was sort of, it was held following the COVID pandemic or after the previous conference had been COVID delayed. There was intense focus from the media and quite a lot of commentary about it, including from an Australian perspective considerable pressure around our own NDC or nationally determined contribution. Politically, um, as the COP unfolded, there was also a real focus around phase out versus phase down of fossil fuels, mixed views on that front, and quite a, um, quite a lot of unfolding coverage as the COP progressed. 
think it's fair to say since then there hasn't been the same level of of media interest and appetite. I feel like COP27 basically flew under the radar by comparison from an Australian perspective at least. So I think that's right. Um, Some of those listening in might might recall COP27 was held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt and it did lead to an agreement around loss and damage um, and the mechanism by which rich countries might compensate poor countries for damage caused by climate change. But actually it was... um, it resulted in a lot less focus uh, in in Australia in particular, but I think globally as well. Um, It's interesting now that we have another cop on the doorstep um, uh, to see how this one will unfold. I I think going into it, there hasn't hasn't been intense media scrutiny, uh, although there has been a bit of a focus uh, on, on a few issues. Lewis, be great to bring you in at this point. You're about to be a two-time COP attendee and a, a, a second-time panellist on the Sustainable Innovation Forum for Business, which runs alongside COP. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Tim. No, look, I was in Glasgow um, in 2021, and it was um, it was interesting to to walk around and see the you know the, the sort of um, the level of kind of frustration and anger, if you like, that's out there on the streets. Um, there were protests, um, there were a lot of banners, um, and you can see from those messages just the level of, um, you know, angst that's out there in the community, um, particularly among young people, I would say, about climate change and the fact that um, for, for a lot of people, not enough is being done about it quickly enough. Um, and I suppose those of us who are in the corporate world and who are advising those in the corporate world, you know, we have to, uh, we have to accept that, if you like. That there is that frustration out there at how um at the pace of things and how how it's going um the fact is the global population is still growing um prosperity around the world is still going up which you know is is a good thing but with that um emissions still continue to rise you know notwithstanding the the, the 28 cops as as you as you pointed out emissions uh, keep rising um our dependence on fossil fuels is also still there you know globally 84% of the world's energy needs are still coming from fossil fuels. Um, the fossil fuels that give us this prosperity also perhaps in the long term, you may take it away, given that that is the major contributor to you know to man-made climate change. So we've got this conundrum that we still are facing into. Um, but over the last few years, there has been a lot of progress uh, in relation to governments really committing to doing something about um, emissions. You know, the UK, for example, legislating in 2019 to go net zero by 2050 and many, um, many governments following in, in, in their, their lead. And just the levels of investment that we're seeing now in um, uh, energy transition technologies, you know, renewable energy, uh, batteries, uh, grid enhancements, etc. You know, in the last um, in the last 12 months, it's well above one trillion dollars now that's been invested globally in energy transition. Um, and we're starting to see the costs of some of these technologies fall to the point where they're becoming, you know, a natural choice, solar and wind, uh, for example. Um, so we're starting to see real progress. We're starting to see up uptick. Um, but we we continue to face this issue, if you like, that as the um, as the energy demands grow, uh, fossil fuels are still very much part of the mix. So there's still a lot more that needs to be done. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion about that at COP28. I remember um, 
at COP26, you were talking about the level of capital which had been committed to energy transition and the fact that you saw it as a sort of signal being sent out from the financial institutions that the capital was there to be invested, but issues around deployment and the rate of the investment. I wonder if you have any any reflections on that. I think uh, particularly particularly at the capital which was committed through the the Glasgow Financial Alliance to net zero. How do you see the rate of investment which has unfolded in the past couple of years? Yeah, no, definitely the last um, conference. I guess one of my key messages was that um, the capital is there uh, for these uh, for these projects, but the projects themselves need to be um, quote unquote investable or bankable. In other words, the projects have to have the ability to produce a profit for those involved. Um, many projects, putting aside, let's say, photovoltaic solar, putting aside onshore wind, most of the other renewable energy technologies are still quite nascent. You know, even, even offshore wind is still pretty much in its infancy, although there has been more practice going on around the world. But when you look at green hydrogen, you look at carbon capture and storage, um, you look at other um, energy transition technologies, they're still really at the beginning. Um, over time, and as this, there's more engineering practice, the costs of these technologies will fall. But we've got to get these projects deployed, you know, en masse ar around the world to create that engineering practice, to create the um, environment where the costs can fall. Um, and that's really down to, you know, policy. It's down to regulations being set that create that environment for investment. Um, on the one hand, it's about providing direct grants and subsidies to these uh, technologies in order that they can be taken forward. And on the other hand, it's about putting in place carbon prices that will actually create the kind of broader environment to level the playing field with hydrocarbon technologies. Um, and what I was saying last time around is that there needs to be more of a focus on that, more of a focus on actually creating that environment for these, for these projects. Um, we are seeing developments though on that front um, for example, you know, in in the UK where I'm based, um, there's been a huge amount of work in the last couple of years on the decarbonisation of industry, which they um, have always referred to as they as the hard to abate sector. You know, um, trying to working on actually creating the instruments that will allow investment into the, the capture of the carbon um, from from industry and the storage of that carbon actually under the seabed in uh, depleted oil and gas reservoirs um, and also the instruments that are going to enable green hydrogen. Um, that's been worked on in the UK, it's been worked on in the different European states and also in Australia you've, you know, you've been working on other instruments to enable technology. So we start, we're really seeing a lot of progress. Um, I'm sure it's still very frustrating from the point of view of the public and in terms of what they're seeing but definitely behind the scenes um, and in our offices and the offices of our clients and the governments there's been a lot of progress on actually developing these instruments to enable these technologies. And that, that's what I'll be talking about at this next COP28 is, is really the progress. We will grill you about uh, what you plan to talk about at the next the next, uh, mm -hmm. the next COP in, in a minute. And whether there'll be a song associated with it as yep. there was with memorably uh -huh. by Lewis for COP26. Um, look it up on his uh, LinkedIn, scroll back a few years and you'll see it for anyone that hasn't checked that out. Before we get to that, though, Carolyn, what's your take from an Australian perspective? 
Uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of the themes that Lewis has already touched on definitely apply in the Australian perspective. I think um, our government probably had been further behind. There has been a flurry of, of policy activity uh, and it has filled some of the vacuum that I think existed uh, around energy policy and, and climate change. Equally, uh, whilst I think things have improved, it's probably not as radically as people would have hoped. And I think there's still some key questions and inflection points that remain unresolved. Um, and because of that, I think there is still a, a hold up for deployment of capital, particularly from private capital investors and, and big super funds. Uh, definitely in the Australian market, they are on the lookout for opportunities to invest in the energy transition. But uh, the, the comments when you talk to those investors is there's just a shortage of quality opportunities or what Lewis would uh, sensibly call investable uh, opportunities. And um, in terms of what I think those inflection points or those pieces are that haven't quite yet been nailed down in Australia, I think one of them is there is still very much an active debate around the role of gas in Australia's transition. And, and the government is still continuing to send some mixed signals around where it stands on that. Um, I think another one is that the government, in terms of how it's deploying its capital that it's putting behind uh, in terms of incentives, is still adopting what some would call a pick-a-winners approach, um, as opposed to, you know, you contrast that with the Inf Inflation Reduction Act in the US that basically just sets the playing field and, you know, lets people pursue whatever opportunities they might want to invest in, and some of them will emerge as winners rather than trying to preempt that in advance. Um, and with things like carbon capture and storage in Australia, there is still a feel that there is a bit of a foot in both camps in terms of incentives around that. And then the third thing I draw out is our approvals process for, for big projects is still incredibly slow and becoming slower. But I think even things that are more um, universally seen as necessary, like creation of new transmission infrastructure, um, even those approvals are proving slow and difficult to obtain. So, yeah, Australia is definitely suffering from a lot of the same challenges that Lewis pointed out. Mm. But just bringing us back to COP28 and, and Dubai, um, Herbert Smith Freehills is sponsoring the Sustainable Innovation Forum this year, SIF, as it gets referred to. It's going to be held on the 4th and 5th of December and is a platform for businesses, political leaders, experts and industry stakeholders to share insights around decarbonisation, climate change and energy transition. The overall theme is transformative innovation for a nature positive net zero equitable economy or a cop of action. Um, we'll, we'll be joined by Silver Goldberg, who is our global head of ESG and, and lead of the firm's climate change practice on the third wheel shortly, who will give us a bit of a debrief after the, uh, the forum. But before uh, we get to that, uh, Lewis, you're going to be joining a panel. What's the plan? Do you have uh, any particular expectations going into it? Yeah, so the panel I'm on is about decarbonisation of industry. Um, and it's an interesting lineup. Um, I think I'm joined by um, ERM, the, the environmental consultancy. Uh, there's a representative from one of the European governments on there as well. Uh, and then there's someone representing a particular technology. It's chaired by um, a, a BBC journalist who um, was a long time um, deployed on their international sort of operations. Anyone who's gone to a hotel overseas and switched on the BBC will have seen 
we've seen the journalists. So I've had my preparation session. I've gone over the points and I've been pushed pretty hard to um, to, to, you know, to come up with something uh, positive and um, and that, that demonstrates action. Um, so look, I'm I'm going to be talking about the, the, the kind of work that we've been doing, um, working with the, the UK government uh, to develop up those instruments, basically that are going to enable the first uh, major carbon capture projects in the UK. The, these projects are being worked on by uh, the team I'm a part of in London, um, where we're working with some of the some of the major oil and gas companies actually uh, in in developing up these first of kind projects. Uh, the UK is basically they've run a competition over the last couple of years to um, to, to try to look for what are the most hopeful um, carbon capture projects that can decarbonise entire clusters of industry in the UK. Um, so basically create uh, create the industry around capturing carbon from entire industrial clusters, take that carbon uh, and then pipe it um, out to sea and, and deposit it into the um, depleted oil and gas fields. So it's a pretty major operation it's going to need a huge amount of government support um, and our clients have been working directly with the UK government you know over the last couple of years to try to enable this and create the first of kind um, of these sorts of operations so I'm going to share that with the, the with the panel um, and with the crowd and um, and get into you know good conversations with others about what they're seeing because I think it's through the it's through the sharing of this experience um, and the sharing of this kind of regulatory technology, if I can call it that, um, I think that's going to enable um, decarbonisation to spread, if you like, um, ar around the world, you know, with the countries like the UK, Australia and the US really setting the example. So, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So, Lewis, one aspect of this entire transition we haven't really touched on is the linkages between all the investment and projects that need to happen and all the exciting things that I think we're aiming to do as a as a global society to achieve this transition, but the trade-offs in terms of affordability of energy in particular and reliability. And, you know, those are very front and centre, I think, in each of individual countries' dialogue around um, around transition. What are your what are your thoughts on that and you know whether that's going to be a thematic that that really gets attention at, at COP28? Mm. No, it's a good point, Kaz. And um look, definitely over the last couple of years, there's been a, a hugely increased focus on energy security and energy affordability. You know, they talk about the trilemma, um reliability, affordability, sustainability. Um, and there has been a huge focus on sustainability over a long period of time, and that's that's definitely um, what sort of captures the public attention. But as I said, recently, reliability and affordability have come to the fore as they've started to be threatened by various world events. Um, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and, and uh, the inflation and um, interest rate increases that we've seen post-COVID. Um, and to the point where it becomes quite palpable. And for example, there was a by-election held in the UK recently um, where um, the additional costs of uh, being imposed on um, high emission vehicles became the major issue in that um, in that by-election you know it was a 12 pound 50 per day charge that um, was balked at basically um, and and caused that um, election to swing in a different direction so it's become a, a huge focus and um, some of these things I've talked about you know creating these investable instruments etc they do add um, costs to the price of energy. 
you know, these um, the, the levies in relation to hydrogen, for example, will be added directly to the electricity bills of UK customers. So they will see it. And this all starts to become quite real. But over time, um, these the costs of these technologies, they have to fall. Uh, otherwise, um, energy does become unaffordable uh, and these things just simply won't, won't happen, given the, the importance of, of energy. Um, we're going to start to see a, a sort of a ratcheting up, if you like, of the carbon prices in, in Europe and the UK. And to ensure that the industries don't leave the Europe, Europe and the UK, there will be um, border adjustment mechanisms will come into play. So they're already being trialled in Europe. And within a couple of years, they'll be they'll be in place. So extra costs will be imposed on imported goods into Europe and the UK. Um, this is going to create a huge incentive for low carbon technologies, because then you have a, a market that's going to benefit from lower carbon technologies being rolled out. And all these um, devices, if you like, are designed over time to increase the, the kind of investment in this area and ultimately the costs to fall over time. So yes, it's a huge focus, um, but over time we should start to see the costs fall as, as these um, technologies are rolled out. I might wind up here, Lewis. Thank you very much for joining us on the third wheel today. Some excellent insights and scene setting on the eve to COP28. And thank you also, Carolyn, for, for your, uh, your co-hosting expertise. In a future episode, as I mentioned, we'll have Silke on to talk about some of the key takeaways from COP28. Normally, we like to end these episodes with a bit of a fun fact, but today we have some fun homework instead. Uh, with the world's attention... Fun in homework. Fun Sounds homework. Like, like an oxymoron to me, Tim. We're lawyers, I mean... It, it... With the world's attention increasingly focused on conservation, restoration and sustainable use of biodiversity, we wanted to point you to a questionnaire that HSF recently released. It's for businesses across all sectors seeking to benchmark their progress against biodiversity-related considerations from a governance and, and a due process perspective. We're hoping it serves as a use, useful tool for boards seeking to understand how their businesses are managing biodiversity-related risks and positioning themselves to take advantage of some of the opportunities. We'll post the link in the episode notes, but happy homework. And on that note, thanks for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.